We read scripture this evening from Exodus chapter 8. We'll begin reading at verse 20, and we read into chapter 9 through verse 17. So we begin reading at Exodus 8, verse 20. We hear the inspired word of God. And the Lord said unto Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh. Lo, he cometh forth to the water. And say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Else, if thou wilt not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies upon thee, and upon thy servants, and upon thy people, and into thy houses, and the houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies, and also the ground whereon they are. And I will sever in that day the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there, to the end that thou mayest know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. And I will put a division between my people and thy people. Tomorrow shall this sign be. And the Lord did so. And there came a grievous swarm of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses and into all the land of Egypt. The land was corrupted by reason of the swarm of flies. And Pharaoh called for Moses and for Aaron and said, Go ye, sacrifice to, the, to your God in the land. And Moses said, It is not meet so to do, for we shall sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. Lo, shall we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes? And will they not stone us? We will go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God, as he shall command us. And Pharaoh said, I will let you go, that ye may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only ye shall not go very far away. Entreat for me. And Moses said, Behold, I go out from thee, and I will entreat the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. But let not Pharaoh deal deceitfully any more in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. And he removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh and from his servants and from his people. There remained not one. And Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also. Neither would he let the people go. Then the Lord said unto Moses, Go in unto Pharaoh and tell him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if thou refuse to let them go and wilt hold them still, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thy cattle, which is in the field, upon the horses, upon the asses, upon the camels, upon the oxen, and upon the sheep. There shall be a very grievous moraine. And the Lord shall sever between the cattle of Israel and the cattle of Egypt. And there shall nothing die of all that is the children's of Israel. And the Lord appointed to set time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord shall do this thing in the land. And the Lord did that thing on the morrow. And all the cattle of Egypt died, but of the cattle of the children of Israel died not one. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, there was not one of the cattle of the Israelites dead. And the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let 
the people go. And the Lord said unto Moses and Aaron, Take to you handfuls of ashes of the furnace, and let Moses sprinkle it toward the heaven in the sight of Pharaoh. And it shall become small dust in all the land of Egypt, and shall be a boil, breaking forth with blains upon man and upon beast throughout all the land of Egypt. And they took ashes of the furnace and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses sprinkled it up toward heaven, and it became a boil, breaking forth with blains upon man and upon beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boil was upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. And Pharaoh hardened his heart, and the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he hearkened not unto them, as the Lord had spoken unto Moses." And the Lord said unto Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For I will at this time send all my plagues upon thine heart and upon thy servants and upon thy people, that thou mayest know that there is none like me in all the earth. For now I will stretch out my hand that I may smite thee and thy people with pestilence, and thou shalt be cut off from the earth. And in very deed for this cause have I raised thee up, for to show in thee my power, and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. As yet exaltest thou thyself against my people, that thou wilt not let them go. We read that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. We take as our text verses 14 through 16 of chapter 9. For I will at this time send all my plagues upon thine heart, and upon thy servants, and upon thy people, that thou mayest know that there is none like me in all the earth. For now I will stretch out my hand, that I may smite thee and thy people with pestilence, and thou shalt be cut off from the earth. And in very deed for this cause have I raised thee up, for to show in thee my power, and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. May God bless his word to our hearts. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, we look this evening at the second set of three plagues. The flies, the death of the cattle, and the boils on men and cattle. Instead of preaching sermons on each of those plagues separately, we group them together as we did the first three plagues last week. There's a lot of repetition in these chapters, all of which points to the main theme of the book, and that is Jehovah God delivering his people from bondage, from a bondage that has to do with sin, and bringing them into the wonder and the joy of their salvation. From every human perspective, Pharaoh and Egypt were invincible. They had the Israelites in their hard grip, and there was no possibility of the Israelites escaping Pharaoh and Egypt. Israel was held in bondage by a force that seemed to threaten even the whole plan of God with regard to salvation. But God revealed from the very beginning the nature of the deliverance. That the nature of the deliverance of God's church would be marked by a conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. We see three levels in that conflict. We see Israel against Egypt, Moses and Aaron against Pharaoh, and ultimately God against the devil. 
Now God's irresistible power is on the foreground again here in these plagues. And God is teaching us this fundamental truth. Salvation is all of God. Unless God intervenes in the life of the sinner, all is in vain. The only hope for us as sinners is the marvelous salvation and the wondrous grace of God. And the Exodus is a picture of that power, that marvelous hand of God by which he delivers his people and gives to them the freedom, the victory, and the joy of their salvation. Sometimes we wonder if a certain sin or maybe a repeated sin might keep us from heaven. Sometimes the devil tempts us. Other times we become proud. We think that our salvation is due to our work and how faithful we've been and how good our family is and all of the diligence that's evident in our lives. God teaches us again and again in humbling ways that your and my confidence is not in ourselves, but the great and glorious God who holds all things in his hand and whose power is the power, whose kingdom is the kingdom and whose glory is his alone. We look to him. He will save every last one of his people and he will do so by his mighty hand and by his stretched out arm. And he will bring every last one of them to the confession that salvation is of the Lord. We see in this history God taking the fierceness of man, Pharaoh, and turning it to fulfill his promise. There's progression that comes upon the Egyptians now in their judgment. Everything being about God, everything about God's glory here. God could have just cut off Pharaoh and God could have eliminated Pharaoh from the very beginning. But God had a higher purpose that he would work glorifying himself through Pharaoh and through the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. As God began these plagues, God introduced a wonder. And now, even a greater wonder. These plagues here, this second set of three, will not affect his people. God will make it so that the land of Goshen now is spared. And the plague takes place all around them in Egypt. If this does not display the greatness of the glory of God, nothing can. And this demonstrates again the hardness of the heart of the wicked. God's purpose to show his glory and his majesty. And so we look at more plagues, noting the glory of God, the wonders, and the witness. That thou mayest know that there is none like me in all the earth. That's verse 14. Now we know the purpose of God in all things is his glory. That was God's purpose with regard to creation. That's the purpose of God that set forth with regard to the whole of the scriptures. Everything that takes place in the world in which we live is ordained by God for his glory. God is great and greatly to be praised. And that's the theme of the whole of the scriptures. As the scriptures set forth Jehovah God as the triune God who is the creator, the redeemer, and the sanctifier of his people. Jehovah God, according to his wisdom and righteousness and power, executing all that takes place in the world by his mighty hand and demonstrating his greatness, his glory. Later, after the Exodus, the Israelites will sing a song. 
And in that song, in chapter 15, 11, they state, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? That's the theme that resounds through the book, and it's the theme that we need to see as we look at the whole of creation and all the outworking of God's history. There is no God like unto our God. And through all of history, the greatness of the glory of this God is on the foreground. That all men everywhere might bow in worship and adoration and praise and acknowledge that there is no God like this God. There is no God whose glory is like the sun shining in all of its brightness. The God who governs and directs everything according to his hand of providence. In heaven, the glory of God is going to be the focus of the elect to all eternity. Blessing and glory and honor be to the one who is on the throne and to the Lamb. And that's the theme that we already see taking place in this history. Genesis is the book of beginnings, setting forth the glory of God with regard to all of the various aspects of those beginnings. The creation, the beginning of salvation, the beginning of God's wonder work. And now that theme continues in the book of Exodus as God's greatness is on display. And God does this repeatedly stating, this is for the generations to come, that they might know my majesty, my power, and my greatness. Instructing the people, tell your children, teach your children that they might know the mighty works and wonders of Jehovah God. And so for generations, we read of that instruction. Parents, teach your children. And what is it we are to teach our children? The awe, the glory, the majesty of Jehovah God. Monuments would be established again and again throughout this history. And God would repeatedly command the people, look to those monuments, point them out to your children. Make sure that your children know why that monument is there and what it stands for. And God sets forth the whole of the scriptures as that glorious monument to you and to me. But how quickly we forget. How quickly the people would forget. And as they forgot, they didn't teach their children. They became guilty of idolatry within a few generations, turning away from this great and glorious God and now following after idols the imagination of man's hands. So God sends a wonder, and then he sends another wonder, and God clarifies the purpose and the extent of the wonder, and we read in verse 22 of chapter 8, that thou mayest know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Now this would be the point that we need to ask. Knowing this great God, knowing the glorious works that he's performed, why would you serve idols? Why would we follow after anyone else? What would be our motivation to find another God, to find a different God? How would any idol be able to compare to or be appealing when we have this great and glorious God who is our God and our Father? But the devil, again and again, has his way with us. We think money, we think this, we think that is more important. And we begin living our lives in the pursuit of that which is empty, that which is hollow. And again, the Israelites of old, similarly, 
They would lose sight of the glory of God. And then they would begin to pursue their own imaginations. Why would you pursue the ways of sin when you have this glorious God who has done such wonders on your behalf? This God who provides your every need, who stands between you and the enemy, who fights battles on your behalf. This great God who provides spiritually and physically, this is the God whom we serve and the God whom we worship. And very practically, beloved, this is the God whom we delight to serve. This is the God whom we rejoice to pray to and to acknowledge as our God. This is the God for whom we live and to whom we owe our all. Who else is worthy of your worship? Who else is worthy of my worship? But God has to repeatedly remind us, and he does so through the history of Scripture, he does so in our own lives, that we might always stand in awe with fear and reverence between the greatness before the greatness and the glory of our God. And so in this history, God is saying, I cannot be compared to any other. To whom will you compare me? And so God now sends the plagues in rapid procession. Moses and Aaron appear before Pharaoh, inform him of what's going to happen. The plague comes. The result often is that Pharaoh is moved with fear. He realizes the horror of it. He has some kind of a feigned sorrow and cries for Moses and Aaron to come back and to take away the plague. And if only they will do it, then he will accommodate their request. But then what ends up happening? There's no accommodation. Pharaoh hardens his heart and as soon as the plague is removed, he changes his mind and refuses to allow them to go. And then God sends another plague so that God repeatedly continues the cycle until the tenth plague at which time the firstborn will be killed. Now in order to show his power and his glory even in a greater measure, from now on all the plagues come only on Egypt and Goshen is accepted, is avoided. Again, what a wonder. What a great God. That God causes there to be a separation between Goshen, where the Israelites live, and the rest of Egypt. And God reveals in this way that his judgments are not intended for all men. His judgments are intended for the wicked and the righteous will be spared. And so God establishes that division between his people and the Egyptians. What a glorious God, again, beloved, we serve. A God who establishes a wall of separation between his children and between the wicked world. The world thinks that they can draw God's children away from God. The world thinks that they can draw God's children into the ways of sin and apostasy. But God says, I am that wall of division. I will preserve and I will keep them. And even though judgments from a temporal perspective fall on all men, God gives us to know that there's a difference in purpose. There's a difference with regard to the things that happen in our lives because they're motivated by a loving God who cares for us and who's working everything together for our good. So that though these judgments, though these troubles happen, there's a division, there's a separation. There's punishment for the wicked, there's chastisement for God's elect. And God will preserve his own. God will keep them. And he will keep them from all the judgments 
that will come upon the wicked that will result in their destruction this great God beloved we confess as my God and we worship and we adore him and then how much more in the fact that he gives us a savior he gives us his own son so that the whole of the history is pointing to the wonder by which God through the wonder of the cross would bring about that deliverance of his church it's no wonder that our confessions again and again make reference to this reality having this God having Jesus as our Savior why would we pursue anyone else why would we seek another mediator why would we try to find something else to put our trust in this great God is the God who is our Father now this God shows wonders and we look then briefly at these plagues now that come upon them first we read and the Lord did so and there came a grievous swarm of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants houses and into all the land of Egypt the land was corrupted by reason of the swarm of flies chapter 8 verse 24 Pharaoh again is down by the Nile he will not learn he's still worshiping the water this displays again the hardness of the heart again he's not there to bathe he's there to worship and he hardens his heart as he still looks to the God of the Nile somehow this God of the Nile is still going to help him and now what happens swarms of insects now plague Egypt Egypt given all the waterways all the marshy areas always had tremendous problems with insects but now God makes it intolerable swarms and multiplications of insects our translation says flies but the word is broader than that come over the land and many of these insects strikingly again were associated with gods and with goddesses even to the point that the Egyptians were forbidden to kill some of the insects because of the fact that they had some religious significance so for religious purposes they were to endure those insects the situation becomes so intolerable for Pharaoh that he calls for Moses and Aaron and now he offers a type of a compromise get rid of these insects and I will let you go but again as soon as the swarms are gone he hardens his heart changes his mind and refuses to give in to that request God again causing even a wonder greater and it's hard for us even to imagine how this could be the land of Egypt filled with insects but then you step into the border of Goshen nothing God making it clear that there's a separation the insects are under his control he's the Lord of hosts and he commands them whithersoever they're allowed to go and they obey the insects obey better than Pharaoh better than the wicked God making it so that it's evident I am God alone and these are my people and I will preserve them and I will keep them as my own notice too that God performs this wonder without the rod of Moses before Moses had used his rod now God is showing that these wonders are coming from his hand there's no need for a rod it could have been that Pharaoh or the magicians might start thinking that there was some power in that rod and they would start attributing and then these wonders to the rod God wants no misunderstanding from Pharaoh or to his magicians these wonders are from the Lord's hand 
Then secondly, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon the cattle which are in the field, upon thy horses, upon the asses, upon the camels, upon the oxen, upon the sheep. There will be a very grievous moraine. Chapter 9, verse 3. Again, Moses announces the plague without any use of his staff. This is the hand of the Lord. And it was the introduction of a fatal pest that afflicted all the animals. So severe this is that we read that all the animals in Egypt died. Now we realize that there's more plagues that come later and they're also going to affect the animals and more animals are going to die. So that many still are living. But the point is, this is thorough. God is affecting the whole of the land of Egypt so that by the end of these wonders, Egypt is going to be decimated. Here again, there's this issue. The Egyptians worshipped animals. Especially they worshipped the bull. The bull was considered by them one of their great gods. And now, what happens? These sacred beings are dying at the hand of God. And where is the god of the bulls? Where is the bull god to protect them and to keep the animals from dying? There was also a god of the cows, a goddess of fertility, who would be the one that would provide then for their well-being through the gift of animals and the gift of milk and butter and all the rest of the things that come from cows and from their milk, where is the God of the cows? The cows now are dying. So that that which the Egyptians held as sacred now is perishing. Where are they going to get their milk? Where are they going to get their meat? Where are they going to get their butter, their cheese? The gods of the Egypt aren't going to help them. The gods of Egypt are not assisting them. Egypt is ruined by the death of their cattle. And notice Pharaoh. He sends someone to Goshen just to check out, to see once how the Israelites' cattle are doing. They're fine. All the Israelite cattle are doing great. And yet again, God has partitioned it off so that the moraine only affects the Egyptian cattle. But yet, in his stubbornness, though he sees that, his heart is hardened. In verse 7 of chapter 9, And Pharaoh sent, and behold, there was not one of the cattle of the Israelites dead. And the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Then thirdly, And they took up the ashes of the furnace, and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses sprinkled it up toward heaven, and it became a boil, breaking forth with blains, upon man and upon beast. Chapter 9, verse 10. This time the plague comes from Moses in the presence of Pharaoh, but without any announcement. Previously, God had sent Moses to Aaron, and Aaron to Pharaoh to announce that a plague was coming. This time, simply they appear, and now Pharaoh is threatened without warning. And without warning now, he's threatened with the reality of the dire judgment that will come upon all mankind without announcement that's striking the announcement might have left the impression that Pharaoh if you change your mind the plague won't come God wants to make clear no this plague is going to come and all the future plagues now are coming without warning it affects the people in such a way that previously it was just their property that was being affected and perhaps inconveniences for them. Now, they are directly affected. 
and their person is affected. And that becomes evident, especially here with the magicians. The magicians in verse 11 could not stand before Moses because of the boil. For the boils, boil was upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. God demonstrates again the folly of the Egyptian gods. They had all their gods of healing. Where were their gods of healing? They had their gods of the earth. And they were prone often to take dust and to take dirt and throw it up in the air. And if that dirt fell on you, that was a sign of blessing because the God of the dirt now is going to bless you. Now what does Moses do? He takes the dirt and he throws it up in the air and it turns into boils on men and on animals. Those who had any defilement were not even allowed to practice religion. They for sure couldn't perform any religious rites. And now, everyone is defiled. There's nobody left to perform any religious rites. God demonstrating again, I am God. Egypt, known for their medicine, for their advances in medicine. They had healing gods. They had gods of the sciences. They had gods of wisdom, gods of knowledge that had provided the doctors with all their understanding. Where are those gods? Where is that healing now? There is no escape. There were no gods that could remove this epidemic. And that was another thing they had. Gods that would remove the epidemics. Where are those gods? Where are the gods that could remove the plagues? Pharaoh sees the great suffering, and not only of the magicians, but of the people. And there's no doubt, by this time, the Egyptians are crying out to Pharaoh, let these people go. But Pharaoh has no heart, not in not even for his own people. He even again sends messengers to Goshen and he hears there's no plague in Goshen. Yet, he refuses to listen. How is God glorified, beloved? A number of things we can point out. God is showing that he is above everything. God is above all of creation. He's the creator not only, but he's the one who ordains everything and in his providence upholds all things. God is not only above the idols in terms of his majesty and glory, but God will destroy Egypt. And he will destroy Egypt in the presence of her gods, and none will be able to stop him. God is demonstrating, I am God alone. But secondly, God is mocking the gods of the Egyptians. And in making mockery of them, he's demonstrating, you cannot put your trust in anything of this earth. Those idol gods cannot defend you. They cannot keep you. They cannot assist you. God is destroying the land. And the Egyptian gods, they're of no help. They're being wiped out. And there's no place to go for relief. God's testimony is, to whom will men go for salvation? There is only one, and that is Jehovah alone. They can't turn to the gods of the Nile. They can't turn to the gods of the earth. They can't turn to the sacred bulls. They're dead. They can't turn to the gods of the cows. Jehovah is showing, your gods are nothing. And God is showing that I'm above Pharaoh. All wicked men who exalt themselves and believe of themselves to be something when they are nothing stand condemned by Jehovah God. Pharaoh is stubborn. He's hard. But it's clear Though Pharaoh thought he was a god, Pharaoh is not in control any longer. All Pharaoh can do 
is hard in his heart. And this is according to the will of God. And God's judgment is upon Pharaoh. The idea that God would harden someone's heart so that they can't repent causes some men to rebel and to say, but that can't be the intention of God. God is displaying, beloved, that he alone is God and that he works so that when people resist him, he gives them over to their sin, turns them over to their rebellion. God says, you reject me, you lie, you steal, you cheat, you drink, I'll give you over to it. You make that your God, go for it. See how it treats you. God's not the author, but God is the one who judges and gives over to sin. And God is sending these rebellious men, women, children to hell as the just God of heaven and earth. We can object to that, and as we noted last time, Romans 9 is very clear, even making specific reference to this passage and to this history. God raising up Pharaoh for this purpose. And the question then is, but that doesn't seem fair. Who are we to object? Who are you, O oh man, to reply against God? Paul says in the book of Romans in chapter 9, God will have mercy upon whom he will, others he hardens as a manifestation of his power. And we see that power. And the whole of the scriptures is to testify this. Our God is a God who does whatsoever he wills. That's Psalm 115.3, but our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. This God displays his glory through these wonders. And again, that distinction is significant between Goshen and the rest of Egypt. Normally, temporal judgments come on the wicked along with the righteous. God always works a spiritual wonder, and that spiritual wonder is that the motive behind them is different. And that's our blessed assurance. Though, as the end gets closer, judgments come upon the world, and though the world increasingly experiences the horror of it, his people are saved. But how does God save his church? He saves his church through judgment. The same means, the judgments, are used by God to save some, to harden others. All in Jehovah's mighty work and power. What is God's witness? Verse 16, that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. There is a God who has purposes. And he is a living God who created all things. And this great God even finds a use for hardened, wicked sinners. This God is revealing his majesty, his power, throughout the whole of the world. And he will establish his kingdom. And he will see too the destruction of the wicked and the salvation of his church. The only possibility of a people being distinguished is by a wonder of God. The only possibility of a people being separated unto God is by a wonder of his grace. From a human perspective, the Israelites look the same as the Egyptians. From a human perspective, many of the Israelites were starting to follow after the gods of the Egyptians, just like the Egyptians did. They walked the same way, they talked the same way at times, but there's a mercy that's in Jesus Christ that makes the difference. And so it is with us. In the midst of this world, we're no different, ultimately, from the wicked. They have the same 
sinful nature within them as we have. There's no difference of self. But God in his mercy and his grace separates unto himself a people upon whom he will show his goodness and his love. And that wonder is the wonder of election which is displayed in time through the wonder of the cross. Jesus coming to save his people from their sins. Now we might ask a question about that fourth plague. Why did God remove the plague of the insects when God knew that Pharaoh's humility was false? Pharaoh is the one who said, I'll let, I'll let the people go. God knew that the king was being deceitful. Why doesn't God say, don't trust him? He's not going to keep his word. God leaves Pharaoh without any excuses. Pharaoh would never be able to say, I promise that if the plague was removed, then I would have let the people go. But your God wouldn't listen. Your God wouldn't take away that plague. But secondly, God will do according to all of his will and his counsel. God is not a man. The sinner will not escape or fool God. God, according to his perfect plan, knew that Pharaoh would harden his heart. And God intended to send more judgments upon Pharaoh. But finally, we realize that this is God giving a wicked man over to sin. God plunges Pharaoh all the more into destruction that all mankind might see the power of sin and be warned. And that's the warning for you and for me as well. We see Pharaoh. We see the hardness of Pharaoh. We see the wickedness of Pharaoh. And we are warned. Repent. Turn away from that hardness. There are times when we're inclined to be hardened. Times when we rebel and we continue in that rebellion. God warns us. Repent. Turn from your sins. Know the wonder of mercy that's found in Jesus Christ alone. But wicked men and women find all kinds of ways instead of repenting to try to soothe their conscience. To try to convince themselves everything's okay. Everything is well. We don't need to be afraid of God. After all, God's not going to really do the things that God says that he's going to do. That's the way Pharaoh is thinking here. God's not really going to do the things that he says that he's going to do. I don't really need to be afraid of this great God. Think of Hebrews 10 verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Or Hebrews 12 verse 25. Our God is a consuming fire. Despite warning after warning, the wicked cast themselves headlong down to destruction. The people of God are given to see the mind of God so that they know that there is none else like unto Jehovah. God's witness is not only to the wicked, but God's witness is also to his church and to his children. And God's witness and testimony is you cannot deny this great God. The wicked may harden their heart all they want, but displayed to all of the world is the fact this God, he is God. He is highly exalted above everything that is in the creation. The Israelites during the time of Ahab were forced to acknowledge Baal was no God. Jehovah alone was able to send the fire. Even if they didn't believe it in their hearts, they were forced to acknowledge it on Mount Carmel. And so also here in Egypt, 
the Egyptians were forced to acknowledge, even if they didn't believe it, that there is no God like the God of the Israelites. Their gods cannot begin to do what this God is doing. The evidence that Jehovah God is God alone is undisputable. And that's the role of God throughout all of history to display himself in all of his glory so that there is no occasion for any misunderstanding. The wicked are left without excuse for their wickedness. This God is doing something so that all mankind may know that there is a God who rules all things not only, but there is a God who will save to himself a people in his glory. We think of Psalm 24 verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and them that dwell therein. God is the one that owns the whole of the world. He created it. He continues to uphold it. And God is the one that owns everything that's in the world and all the people in it. And God has reserved to himself a people that are called to show forth his praise. And God will bring about that praise. It's striking that in the verses here of our text, we have reference repeatedly to earth. Every verse, 14, 15, and 16, refers to the earth. There is none like me in all the earth. 15, thou shalt be cut off from the earth. 16, that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. God is reminding them in this history and us that the earth belongs to God. Everything that's in the world and everything that has to do with the world is God's. And God is the one directing all things for his purpose and for his plan. And so everything in all of history has to do with the salvation of God's people. And that's what the Bible reveals to us. The wonder of this great and glorious God calling a people unto himself out of sin and out of darkness in order that he might bring them into the wonder of redemption and the glory of their sanctification. And this God will accomplish that wonder. There are times when we experience troubles, difficulties, hardships in our lives. Problems in the church, problems with our health, problems with our neighbors, difficulties with viruses, struggle with health. All of these things come upon us. But God reminds us again and again, as my children, this you will not experience. You will not experience my wrath. You will not experience what you deserve. The wrath of God poured out upon you because of the sins that you've committed. I took your sins and I transferred them to my own son. And Jesus Christ paid the price for every last one of those sins. So that though those, there's hardship and though there's difficulties, God's people are spared the wrath and they are identified as those who are mine. And that's what God is demonstrating in this history. These are mine. And therefore, they're not going to experience this expression of wrath. This wrath is for the wicked. It's not for those who are mine. And the Egyptians clearly can see that wonder of wonders. This God is protecting his people. This God is doing for them what none of our gods are able to do for us. Serving this God is not going to be bondage, but serving this God will be joy and liberty. And God works in us, beloved, that confession. Because here is the struggle that we are up against every day. 
there's still so much Egypt within us. And we find ourselves lured back to Egypt, the Egypt of the world. We need to hear God's word with regard to that separation. You have been delivered from the bondage of sin. Don't go back. Don't find yourself pursuing those lusts and those pleasures. Repent and enjoy the liberty that is yours in Jesus Christ. We heed the warning, beloved, by God's grace. And we by faith cling to the only one who is able to help us and to keep us. God says to us, you are the Israel of God. The church today is the Israel of God. What a beautiful concept that God is the one who preserves his church throughout all of time. Now there are no pharaohs today, but there are many like him. They try to use their authority to try to intimidate, to try to hold God's people in bondage, to try to suppress the knowledge of God. They introduce wicked rules, wicked regulations. They try to persecute and to afflict God's people. They want to keep us from obedience and godliness. And the temptation is to go after Egypt, pursue the things of the Egyptians, and how the devil makes the things of Egypt so appealing. But beware, beloved. How is God glorified? God is glorified through his people as a separate people, a people who are called out, a people who have been delivered from the bondage and power of sin in order to show forth his praise, a people who live antithetical lives before him. And so, beloved, Babylon draws us in. The devil tries to bring us into the ways of sin. The devil tries to harden us to our sin. And we know how that goes. Pretty soon, we don't think that that sin is so bad. And pretty soon, we're engaging in a bit. And pretty soon, our language is that of cursing and swearing rather than being appalled by it. Sin doesn't affect us anymore. We're not as ashamed of sin as we ought to be. Pretty soon, we become a little bit more bold. We boldly engage in activities we ought not do on the Lord's Day. We boldly engage in things that we know are contrary to God's will. Soon, the things of God, they don't really mean so much to us. And foolishly, we think, but, but God isn't going to really do anything about it. God isn't really going to care. Beloved, we're not living with the awe of God in our hearts as we ought. We're not living in the consciousness of His is the power and the glory forever. We're not giving Him that glory that antichrist spirit is in the midst of the world. And the antichrist has that spiritual, that economic, that political aspect, and we're warned to be aware of it. But beloved, God will be glorified. God will preserve to himself a people, and God will see to their deliverance. And we as that people look to this glorious God. We live in thankfulness to the one who alone is worthy of praise and honor the almighty God of heaven and earth. And we turn away from all the idols of our imagination and we cling to the one who alone is able to preserve and to keep us. And we seek to live, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, may we stand in awe of thy greatness and of thy glory. Thou art the one leading us to the promised land. 
And may we love the promises. May we cling to them by faith. In the midst of hardship and oppression and trouble, may we lift our eyes to the one who is preserving and keeping us and working all things together for our good. And may we look forward to the day when the powers of sin will be broken once and for all and we will live in the wonder and the blessedness of thy glory to all eternity. Amen.